Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held in Ennistymon, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello, and you're very welcome to episode 27 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Topman, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And wasn't it wonderful, the reaction we got during the week? People were delighted we were back again. Yeah. I think they were all worried that we were going to throw our hat at it and give it up. So, no, it's it's we're, we're delighted to be back. And all the good wishes we got during the week, we are thrilled with. So thank yeah. you very much to everybody. Well, last week, Mark, as you will recall, we talked to Associate Professor of Law in Maynooth, Brian Flanagan. What, what was that about again? Oh, something to do with judges <laughs> and the internet. So what was the reaction to that? As we know, Brian and his colleagues, who are based on the East Coast of America, found that Wikipedia had featured in some high court decision making. The high court judges are having none of it. Um, and it was an interview that really got people excited. Well, today we are metaphorically off on our travels in that we have an international guest, albeit coming into us in the studio. Regular listeners will know that among the legal books that have been recommended to us on this show was the biography of legendary British libel lawyer George Carman, written by his son Dominic Carman, entitled No Ordinary Man. Well, Dominic, though a journalist rather than a lawyer, specialises on legal matters and is in Dublin currently where he is dealing with all the big firms and he's writing a report on international legal development and he's going to come in to us and talk to us about that and I'm going to have to put a few questions to him about his old man as well the legendary uh, libel lawyer and criminal defence lawyer as well uh, George Carmen Mark are you looking forward to that? Absolutely I, I, I watched the, uh, the the Hugh Grant uh, the dramatisation of the Jeremy Thorpe Jeremy trial Thorpe, of so course, yeah, yeah. and he played a big part in that Yes absolutely absolutely um, but first, we're going to deal with some cases from the Decisis website that you have very kindly uh, identified. Uh, and the first one is a very interesting ruling on the availability of civil legal aid and whether it is available to corporate bodies. This is the case of Friends of the Irish Environment, CLG, and the Legal Aid Board, a Court of Appeal decision of Mr Justice Murray. Yeah. So this is obviously a a, a case by a, a a charity. I mean, it's a it's company limited by guarantee. But Friends of the Irish Environment are obviously a body that uh, concern themselves with protecting the environment. And as we've discussed previously on the show, the Aarhus Convention is is now in place, which is designed to protect people from um, from unduly prohibitive um, uh, having to pay too much in legal fees in relation to any challenges relating to the environment. And so not unreasonably or, or not unsurprisingly, I suppose, the Friends of the Irish Environment have took the view that they should be entitled to legal aid in relation to civil actions. Now, legal aid is obviously very widely used on the criminal side and in the family, family courts, not so much used in day-to-day civil uh, actions, although it's open to people to apply for it. However, the legislation concerning legal aid limits it to natural persons. And so they, they, they it is not available to uh, to bodies corporate. Yes. And so uh, in the court, in the High Court and then the Court of Appeal, 
um, it was affirmed that okay, it is so not a strong available. decision in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next to a judicial review decision concerning a child with autism spectrum disorder. This is the case of NT versus HSE, uh, a High Court decision of Ms. Justice Siobhan Phelan. The HSE in this case had concluded following a review that the child did not sufficiently meet the criteria for disability. However, on review, Ms. Justice uh, Siobhan Phelan found that a comprehensive assist- assessment had been carried out. Everything. Mm-hmm. Had been considered. Yeah. So, but the the background was that this uh, is a child on the on the autism spectrum disorder. As we know, the nature of the spectrum is such that you can be very severely disabled with autism. And there are some people who I, I think the term is high functioning, and I don't know if that's the correct term medically. But so this was a child who had been considered to suffer from a disability. There was then a review by the HSE, and the HSE found that notwithstanding that the child was on the this spectrum that the child no longer suffered, was no longer considered to suffer from a disability. Now, obviously, that has implications for the family for, for, for a number of different things. And the family challenged that decision, saying that they felt that the child did qualify as suffering from a disability. Um, and, but in the judicial review, Ms. Justice Siobhan Phelan looked at all of the circumstances of the case and came to the conclusion that the HSE had considered all the relevant material. And so there was and no they basis... they are the party who are entitled exactly, to make that, a decision. Exactly. That is the job of the HSE. Yes. And if they considered all the relevant yeah, material... Did everything they should have done. Exactly. Absolutely. No, very yeah, good. Yeah. Good, good. Good decision. Um, <laughs> in relation to that. Finally, to a work-related personal injuries claim, this was the case of Curley versus Summerhill Construction Company Limited. This is a decision of Mr. Justice Sanfi. Uh, this case concerned a subcontractor who suffered serious injuries when he fell from a counter while painting a ceiling. Now, the court did find negligence on the part of the contractor who was in control of the site, but also found contributory negligence on the part of the subcontractor who'd got up on the counter. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a, a case where, I mean, as you know, in any case concerning employment, what the court generally looks at is not necessarily the individual negligence, but whether there was a safe system of work. And so if you're asking somebody to paint a ceiling, you need to make sure that what they're standing on is a safe thing to stand on. And whether that's a platform, whether it's a ladder, um, in this case, he stood on a plastic uh, counter, which was not designed to support a person. He fell he obviously suffered very severe injuries because the the injuries I think were were assessed at one hundred and fifty nine thousand, um, but they also found that he himself was responsible to the extent of forty percent, which is 40%, pretty serious. Yes, and so it was reduced down to ninety five thousand. Okay, very interesting decision there. Okay, back shortly <coughs> with Dominic Carman. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Dominic Carman. Now, Dominic, you are a journalist as opposed to officially a lawyer, but you are somebody who writes about legal affairs all the time. uh, And you also have a very strong pedigree, family pedigree in the law. You're the son of the late George Carman QC, who is probably the, the best known personality in British jurisprudence are as a, an advocate uh, in the second half of the 20th century. So we might have a little chat and you wrote a book about your dad. So we'll, we'll have a chat about that as well. But you've been in Ireland and what you do is you write reports about the international legal system and how legal systems merge, etc, etc. The, the, bis- the business sort of, of law stuff. and international law firms Okay, well, will you tell markets. us a little bit what yeah, has sure. you in Ireland at the moment? 
So I've been interviewing for the umpteenth time, but the first time face-to-face, the uh, major law firms in Dublin, the big six, uh, together with the largest offshore firms here, Maples, Walkers, Ogier, Le Mans, um, and then what we might call the large-scale international disruptors, the DLA Pipers, Dentons, and so on, Pinsent uh, Mason, Sims and Simmons, there's a, a long catalogue of international firms who now have a presence here. Uh, and the battle for talent, which is obviously playing out between them as they all look for the to recruit the best lawyers in what is a difficult market for them to do so because there's a finite supply. And at the same time, meeting the demands of their international clients, which are significant. And, and Dublin is a very important uh, legal centre and will become even more so over time. Is this all post-Brexit? It's partly post-Brexit, um, but I think that was an accelerator rather than a catalyst uh, of a trend that was already in play. Uh, so international firms started to open up here in for the global financial crisis, 2006 to 2009. There was then a hiatus, obviously, with the global financial crisis and Ireland's problems in the early part, 10 to 12 years ago. Um, but then post-Brexit, post the referendum result, yes, there's been a further steady stream of international firms opening up, uh, some of which have significant ambitions in terms of size, scale and scope in terms of what they're doing, servicing their international network of clients, and of course, taking on the local market. Yes. And we are known as the land of 100,000 welcomes. Are the existing big five, big six, big seven, big eight, I mean, there's other firms that would like to be thought of in, in those of sort of terms. Uh, are they open op- with open arms welcoming all this international competition into the Irish market? I think the public message is very much that they do welcome the international competition because it internationalises Dublin as, as legal centre. Uh, competition is always a good thing. Um, and... It's, the ecosystem of law firms in Dublin is only going to be enhanced uh, and developed as a consequence of that uh, increased internationalisation and the development of talent. However, and there is a however, if one looks at the corollary over time uh, and what has happened in other comparable markets where you've had large internationalisation, not least London, uh, but Paris and Frankfurt particularly, uh, is that as disruptors, some of those firms ultimately uh, merge with, take over or cause the fragmentation of the existing status quo. Um, So in asking the questions I have of a number of uh, managing partners of different firms, take the big six now, will they still all be operating in the same basis in 10 years' time? And they all say, no, some of them won't be. They will have merged, they will have changed, they will have become part of an international network. Which firms and when and in what time scale is not difficult, you know, it's not possible to predict. Um, but the, the Dublin legal landscape will change further. It's, it's work in progress. But am I hearing you correctly, Dominic, when you say, as a kind of a first principle, the general position is that this rising tide will lift all boats? Is, is that the attitude at the moment? Yes. But uh, when you have any uh, disruptors entering a market, then there are inevitably over time some casualties and some changes of name, some changes of label. Uh, And that is what will happen. It's just a question of which firms will merge, which will become part of an international network, network, and which may merge with each other. Uh, that's all impossible to predict. But that's very much what happened in the French market and the German market, which are much more substantial, but happened longer ago when the UK and the US international firms entered those markets and started hiring and growing aggressively. So you take France now, there are two or three domestic firms and about 
40 international firms that dominate the French market. Germany is slightly different. There are still quite a large number of successful independents. Um, but in aggregate, if you take the top 20 law firms in Germany, there are more working for international firms based in the US or the UK than there are based in Germany. Can I ask you, who, who are the clients of the big international firms? I mean, when, when a large international firm opens up in Ireland, I mean, are they advi effectively advising multinational firms that want to have a presence in Ireland because of, whether it's because of our tax status, whether it's because we're now in, in, in the, the main English-speaking country in the EU? Is it, is it that kind of client? Or, it, and, it, it, I mean, obviously, it, there's... You know, we hear a lot about, for example, the aviation industry having sort of uh, effectively, yes. uh, the, the Irish uh, effectively dominate the aviation leasing industry in that, obviously. Correct. Is it that kind of uh, business or who, who are the clients? It varies from firm to firm is the answer. Uh, but many of them come here to service international clients who are being served by Irish domestic firms um, and also to provide an international network for companies looking to relocate, reallocate resources uh, to, to Ireland. And in a post-Brexit environment, you know, the greater movement of staff has, has been evident from some of the banks, some of the PE houses. Um, but at the same time, they're also looking at uh, work on behalf of corporates. They're looking on behalf uh, work on behalf of regulators on, and on behalf of um, all types of interna international institution. And in some cases, they're looking at very much a, a sectoral approach or a specialist approach. So a firm like Decat, for example, does almost primarily investment funds and nothing else. Uh, Bird and Bird, which opened recently, which is a very large UK international firm with an IP, IT, healthcare uh, specialisation in Ireland. That's what they're going to do, and they're not going to do the mainstream corporate M&A work. That, that's their USP, and that's what they're going to remain doing, and they have a very large international network of, uh, of uh, offices that's to service. And so, these are, so for example, the funds industry are funds based in Ireland but servicing a sort of international investor community. Yes, and the funds industry, from uh, all objective commentators, is only going to grow much further. And when you have the competition with Luxembourg, those are the two major fund centres in Europe, with London completing the triangle. Uh, but the funds, in terms of the source of funds uh, outside Europe, is primarily from the United States. Uh, and clearly, as that grows and continues to grow further, um, then there's work for funds lawyers. Well, Dominic, I'm sure there's a lot of people here in Dublin that will be very interested in reading that report. It's, uh, uh, is it due out soon? It is. Uh, it will be published in a few weeks. Uh, it's available on reportslegal.com. Nice okay. and straightforward. Yeah, great. Well, I'm sure, as I said, people would read avidly uh, that interest and the, the knowledge of the international market that you bring to it, uh, I'm sure, will be of huge interest to, to Irish-based firms and these firms who are now coming into Ireland. Yes. I mentioned at the, st <coughs> at the start of um, our interview here about your, your, your family connection with the law. You yourself stayed a journalist. I know you ran for Parliament on a couple of occasions, etc. Uh, we, we don't have to go into that. <laughs> but um, you stayed as a journalist. You didn't become a barrister like your dad. No, I never wanted to. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was younger. I still don't. You know, it's one of those things. You, you become a journalist by default. Uh, I started a career in banking, which was interesting, but I realised it wasn't for me. I spent spending more time writing for the in-house bank newspaper than I was doing the job, which sort of says something. Um, I went away for the Times newspaper, and I ended up at Euromoney Publications, working for a uh, great Irishman, in fact, Porrick Fallon, whose brother Ivan Fallon was business writer of the Sunday Times, and his father is an Irish poet called also Porrick Fallon. Um, and he was a one of the best uh, financial journalists in London and a 
tremendously inspirational figure from whom I learned a great deal. And there's an Irish strand in your own family, isn't there? There is. That's it. We're going to get on to your dad, if you don't mind, because, you know, sure. we as train spotter lawyers want to have a chat about him as well, if, if, if you know. Um, but um, just, just I'm just curious, the desire not to follow a legal path, was that a conscious decision? As you say, you, you know, we all fell into journalism. I was a previ- previously a journalist myself, and that is, I, I agree with you, that you can fall into journalism. <laughs> but it, it, was it was it just, you know, your father was such a huge personality in the legal world that, that you well, wanted to do it, it, something different? I don't different. think it was, it was so much that. Um, I think it was more that the law didn't inherently interest me as a teenager. Why would it? Why should it? I don't think it does most most teenagers. And I think most young lawyers aren't necessarily inherently interested in the law. They're interested in the legal career and the opportunities it can supply. And my, my son actually uh, read law uh, at UCL and he decided it was an incredibly boring degree and he wished he hadn't read it. And he then became a practicing lawyer. But you know, he wished he read something else. Yes. As, as, um, Jonathan Sumption, uh, law, uh, you know, famous law lord, uh, and Britain's best known QC, commercial QC until recently, um, also said said that lawyers should never read law. He read history, um, which is a great yes. advocate. So it's more a vocational qualification on top of... I think, I think the uh, argument is you need to be a little more the, mature. The liberal arts degree sort of thing. Yeah, you need to be a little more intellectually mature and emotionally mature to understand what being a lawyer is. You know, well, we've had, we've had, we've had guests in here who have done PhDs in maths physics and then became lawyers. Exactly. So there are many routes on the same journey. Okay, can, can I talk to you about your father, who, you who sadly passed away in 2001? I know you wrote Correct. a book then the following year. I did. No Ordinary Man, and that was the title you put on it, A Life of George Carmen, yes. QC. Now, I know there was a challenging relationship there. We don't really want to get into that. We're more interested in the man as a, as a, as a lawyer. Yes. Um, he was, to, to set out the Irish connection, he was of Irish parentage. His mother was from County Waterford, am I right? My, gran- my grandmother, who sadly I never met, she died in 1954 at the age of 49. Uh, she was from Dungarvan and her brother was uh, Christy Moylan, who was a uh, member of the Dungarvan successful, I understand, uh, team that won the All-Ireland uh, Hurling Championship in 1940. Yes, yes. Six, seven. Wow. I've probably got that wrong, but there or thereabouts. Um, and he has quite a substantial Wikipedia page, which I've read with interest, and I've read about him. He died in 1996, and I never, again, never met him, sadly. Okay. Mm. But your father, your, 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 the, his mother, I think, was the prime mover behind your she father, was a, getting educated, Catholic schools, all of that sort of correct. stuff. Yeah. Irish Christian Brothers, education in uh, Blackpool, uh, then went to Up Holland uh, Seminary, uh, not far from there. Uh, at which point, at some point uh, in his late teens, he decided that he didn't want to be a priest uh, and instead wanted to study law. I don't know if there's a defining moment or there was a gradual evolution, but clearly by the time he was 18, he no longer wanted to be a priest uh, and instead had this vision in life that he wanted very much to be an advocate, to be a barrister. And I think he'd read some of the... biographies and autobiographies of famous barristers and been tremendously inspired by that. And also he discovered a natural talent for debating. Um, so the synthesis of his skills and he was very much a, a very um, a tremendous facility with words, facility with language. Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And he, he, he initially practised in the north of England and Correct. the guy that we know today and the man who made all the headlines and became the celebrated criminal mm. and then libel mm. lawyer that he was, that was a slightly later stage in his life. He wasn't an overnight sensation. He was about 50 when I think the big case, Jeremy Thorpe, wasn't that it? Jeremy Thorpe was the case that made his career. That's right. I mean, he spent 25 years on the Northern Circuit from 1953-54 to 
1979, doing general common law, specialising in personal injury work, doing some criminal work, but not a huge amount. Um, and he was talent spotted by Sir David Napoli, who was... Uh, then probably the best-known criminal solicitor in London, in uh, 1973 uh, when he defended the manager of the Battersea Fund Fair, which uh, sadly uh, resulted in the collapse of one of the carts and killing five children in May 1972. Uh, and he managed to get the manager of the um, Fund Fair uh, acquitted uh, of manslaughter. Uh, and Napoli watched him, watched his speech to the jury, watching cross-examining witnesses and thought, I really ought to be using this, this man. This is the guy. This is the um, man. But it took, there was a long fuse because it was five years before uh, Jeremy Thorpe was charged. Okay, so listen to that, all your lawyers August, out August there. August 1978, it wasn't an overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and in fact, I felt frust- rather frustrated having been promised work by Napoli that it didn't materialise and then suddenly it did in a rather big way. Yeah. God, he must have met some of the solicitors I know. But anyway, <laughs> um, can, can, can I ask you about the Jeremy Thorpe case though? Yes. 1979, this yes. is huge. Will you explain to our Irish listeners, I mean, obviously people will generally have heard of Jeremy Thorpe, former Liberal Party leader, had a relationship with, with a man who he was deemed to have conspired to have killed. Uh, and your father stepped into the breach and defended him. Yes. Um, he, together with three other co-defendants, were charged with conspiracy to murder and Jeremy Thorpe alone was charged with incitement to murder in addition. Uh, the prosecution case was uh, strong. Um and But so was the defence case, because the two chief prosecution witnesses upon whom the prosecution primarily resided uh, in terms of the strength of their case, uh, one was Norman Scott himself, who was the man who was alleged to have been uh, targeted for assassination uh, by a rather inept uh, man called Andrew Gino Newton, who took him out on the moor at night and tried to shoot him and the gun jammed. Shot his dog, uh, I Shot think. his dog called Rinker first and then turned it on him and he ran away and survived, the gun jammed. Um, and a man called Peter Bessel, who had been uh, a fellow Liberal MP in the 1960s with Jeremy Thorpe and had fled to California. Um, and he, it emerged during questioning, had a W money contract with the Telegraph, uh, whereby if, um, after giving evidence, the Thorpe was convicted, he would get £50,000, and if he was acquitted, he'd only get £25,000, which, of course, uh, rather prejudiced the... <laughs> Uh, credibility of his evidence, uh, given the fact there was every incentive for him to try and nail Thorpe in every way possible in the witness box. But on three days of cross-examination, both by my father and by John Matthew, he somewhat dissolved and, and gave up uh, the cause uh, and, and confessed to all sorts of things in his own... I mean, he, he was a man of, of a weak moral character, I think he was described as. Uh, he had all sorts of problems in terms of money, in terms of women, in terms of use of drugs, and he confessed to it all, uh, and sort of gave gave up the ghost. It is an interesting case, isn't it, where the uh, where where it wasn't just the jury that was persuaded by your father. The judge was remarkably sympathetic to the defence case, and not only gave a very uh, sympathetic. Uh, <coughs> Uh, charged the jury, but there's a very famous Peter Cook sketch based on that. There uh, is. That charged the jury, which from, I think, the secret policeman's ball, which is, I have to say, I, I turn to every couple of months because it's just of such entertaining value. It's wonderful, inspirational, comedic. Uh, Peter Cook at his best. Um, it is, of course, a caricature of uh, what actually happened. And whilst the judge did certainly demonstrate his prejudices and very nakedly uh, demonstrated what he thought of the witnesses concerned and some of the language used in Peter Cook's um, 
parody is not so far removed from the actual truth. Um, it does completely neglect the fact that he also did fearfully and fearlessly put the prosecution case in the strongest terms. Uh, and then, uh, so having done that, he then, particularly actually uh, Norman Scott, whom he clearly did not like, um, and but sometimes biased judges, summings up from judges can rebound. Of course. Yeah. Um, and the idea that he... The reason I'm sort of hesitating is because several jurors were interviewed afterwards, including by Sir David Napoli, who uh, spoke to them, you know, what, what moved you? What made an impact on you? Um, and it wasn't the summing up. It sure. was actually the evidence and the cross-examination. Yeah. And they weren't all of one mind, and they spent a lot of time deliberating nearly three days. So it wasn't an open and shut case. And it, by no means did they think, when they concluded the defence case, that they'd won it. Mm. Far, far from it. There, yeah. were, there were other issues in terms of the money, which was much more compelling. Can, can, can I move Sorry, you on no. as well? I mean, obviously, so that was your yes. father Sorry, was initially a criminal. Not, not at all, not at all. It's yeah. wonderful. This is wonderful, Dominic. I'm really yeah. enjoying it. Actually getting lost <clears throat> in what you're saying, actually. Yes. And not tuning into the fact that I needed to ask another question. But um, your, your father was so initially made his mark as a criminal barrister. But then we know him later as a man who went into the area of defamation. So and, ten, 10 years at the top uh, as a criminal barrister and then 10 years at the top as a libel lawyer. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in terms of other criminal cases, I know there was a case in terms of a doctor, a Harley Street doctor, um, who he, he defended. A, he and was a doctor at uh, Leicester, a royal infirmary, actually called Dr. Leonard Arthur, who was a paediatrician, who was charged with the murder in October 1981 of a Down syndrome baby. Um, and he was acquitted. And the jury took only 10 minutes in his case to acquit him. Okay. Uh, which shows the strength of opinion that that jury had yes. about the prosecution okay. case that was brought. Yeah. So, so let's go to the libel cases. What was the first big libel case? The first one that really moved minds and made an impact on defamation lawyers in London and indeed in newspapers was that of Sonia Sutcliffe, the wife of the Yorkshire Dr. River, uh, because she had successfully brought a number of cases, not least uh, against Private Eye uh, and several other newspapers for defamation. Uh, it, the sting of the libels, various libels, but essentially being that she had known what was going on, uh, that she'd failed to report it to the police, um, and in one case that she'd since found, since Peter Sutcliffe had gone to prison, another man who looked remarkably like Peter Sutcliffe uh, as her new partner. Um, and all the newspapers settled, um, and the News of the World decided to fight it. And I watched in court as my father cross-examined as Sonia Sutcliffe, and I must say it was the most chilling episode because um, in several hours of cross-examination, she started to talk about the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper. And she essentially said uh, it was a misnomer to say that he was a ripper because he didn't actually rip his victims, he stabbed them. And that came out in the course of cross-examination. It came, it came out in the course of cross-examination. that was very damning in front of the jury. Well, the semantic difference is irrelevant. Um, the emotional the chill in the courtroom yes. as she was describing it, as if she was describing, you know, cutting up a piece of meat on a slab, um, was, was really quite horrific, actually. And to go back <clears throat> to the technique of, you know, cross-examination that your father was renowned for, yes. 
that was it. He put in a long time in terms of cross-examination. He was very methodical in the way he went about it. He was a great man for the one-liner. He'd always, and, and he, he'd look at the jury, he'd lock his eyes on one juror in particular. There was a sense of theatricality about him, but it was that persistent cross-examination that, that resulted in a breakdown of people, you know, in, 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 the, in the witness box, n- which n- ultimately n- proved successful. N- not always, but sometimes, yes. Um, when he was asked about um, cross-examining Arthur Scargill, he went to um, speak to Robin Day, uh, Sir Robin Day, who used to chair Question Time in the UK, um, to, because he questioned Scargill many times. And the one thing he came, came away with, of course, is the fact that on Question Time, or indeed any political questioning, he was limited by time. It's 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour at the very most. Uh, but of course, in the witness box, there's no limit of time, and he made that point very clear to Arthur Scargill. Um, and I think he I'll keep him you for here for three, as long for, as it needs for three or four days. Yes, um, and that was unusual. Clearly, three or four days is not that common. But effectively, that the point is that there is no, because there's no time limitation. It's a war of attrition, and quite often, the, the, I'm, no, I'm not a cross-examiner, not a barrister, but there are various obviously methods by which you can dissect a witness or get a witness in that revelatory moment where they suddenly agree they've lied or confessed to something. That actually rarely happens. But what, ha- what does happen instead during that war of attrition, and what my father's particularly as adept at doing, is chipping away at the edifice of credibility yes. and sometimes surprising a witness and sometimes taking a risk. And there's a barrister's rule that you should never ask a question to which you don't know or have a pretty good idea of what the answer is going to be because it's too damn risky. Uh, but, but he, he didn't believe in that. Well, he generally did. But an example of one case where he didn't was involved David Miller, who was... Um, the Chelsea shirt. Is that it? It, it was related to the Chelsea shirt. <laughs> okay, it was yeah. a woman called Mona Bowens, who was the oh, daughter of um, PLO. And she had um, taken on David Miller on holiday. Um, and this was tangentially relevant. And uh, my father asked, who paid for the holiday, not knowing what the answer was going to be. And she said, I did. And, th- and that moment, that's when David Miller had to resign. He didn't resign immediately, but he resigned immediately after the case um, because, of course, he shouldn't be receiving free holidays from the daughter of a PLO yes. official. And could I, could I say also, your father, he wasn't averse to... You talked about your ancestor or your great-uncle who was yes. a, a hurling star yes. for, for the Dacia, for, for County Waterford. Well, he yes. wasn't averse to a bit of ground hurling, as we call it over here, where we'd strike a few low blows if he needed to do that. Um, he was well able to bring in sort of a piece of evidence late in the day that could be a game-changer. Didn't that happen specifically in the case of, was it Gianni Allen, who uh, he was acting so, for Channel so, 4, the accusation that she had a relationship with Eugene Terreblanche. Wasn't that the issue? Yes. And a diary arrived in the courtroom in a brown paper envelope and was handed down, down the line to the solicitor, then to the junior counsel, then to my father, with some sort of explanatory note as to what it was, and then asked for an adjournment. And that, of course, then was had to be admitted as evidence, the judge admitted as evidence, and that she was questioned on it for a day or two. And it completely destroyed her case because it included references to her fantasies about Terre Blanche and various other aspects to the case that completely destroyed her credibility. 
But he knew that package was going to come into court, no, didn't he? he? No, did he not? No, he didn't. Okay. No. Another example, you mentioned Gillian Telfall. So yes. a video emerged and that uh, came into the possession of News International lawyers over the weekend for which they paid a sum to two young lads from the who had filmed Gillian uh, Telfall at the Anna Share School Theatre, uh, pretty much simulating on camera what she was alleged to have done and lay by in the A1 Um Intimate, intimate with her. Look it up and Google folks. With her partner, yeah. And unfortunately for her, it was there on video and with her making jokes about it in daylight in a very crude way. You, you obviously sat in court and watched a number of your father's cases. Yes, he liked me to, when I could, attend. Mm. Yeah. And not in any kind of professional capacity, just to, as a... As, no, just um, to... a second year and also mm. to... Um, I mean, I did help him with some... Um, some phrases, some speeches, and that started really with Thorpe. Mm. Um, and the only phrase I can think that that made any, which was which he did actually use in the thought was um, the twelve most precious votes of all, uh, which I had said. Well, you know, this man's used to getting lots of votes from the public, and that's been his lifeblood. I said, now these are the twelve votes that matter most of all. He said, love it. And that was the line. And he used that, yes. yes. <laughs> there are lots of lines he didn't use. Um, but I, uh, the case I spent the longest was uh, that of uh, Ken Dodd. Yes. I was actually three Can weeks. Can I give my line from that one? Please. He said that um, accountants are sometimes comedians, but comedians are never accountants. Indeed, that wasn't original. He'd heard it, at, <laughs> he'd heard it at, at, in some form at an after-dinner speech. Uh, where he gave an afternoon speech at an accountant's dinner and somebody else <laughs> said something about accountants. So he adapted that. He was a great believer. I mean, he, the, of David Meller, he said, um, he's like an ostrich burying his head in the sand, thereby exposing his thinking parts. That derived from a joke made in the Oxford Union in 1951. But, so he remained, you know, he retained these uh, one-liners in his mind and adapted or amended them according to circumstance. And were you involved with him as he sort of prepared his cross-examination? I mean, did you see his sort of work methods and how he kind of dissected a case in order to prepare for these? He was both highly prepared and highly unprepared. The spontaneity of cross-examination he regarded as very important and be able to think on your feet and go from question A to the next subordinate question, subordinate question, and if necessary, deviate. Uh, is critical. Whereas if you've got everything written out, um, it can be too formulaic and not necessarily sure. adapt to the circumstance. So he was he was both. Uh, and we, we've talked about him acting for obviously media organisations and yes. newspapers. And we know that when there was a libel case, straight to the phones, get him before the other side get him. That, yes. that was the that's the I suppose the the, the comment that was put out there. Whether uh, that's Alan, true or Alan, not. Alan Rusbridge, editor yes. of the Guardian, allegedly said that in the context of. Aitken, when Aitken sued yes. the Guardian, and he said, let's get George Carmen before he does. He acted for, for the punter as well. I mean, for example, Elton John, wasn't that a famous case where he defended him? Well, it was famous in the sense because it was Elton John, it was famous. The The issue um, was interesting. It, it was a mistaken identity where the journalist had seen somebody who thought it was Elton John drinking, throwing up, whatever, and it wasn't Elton John, and they couldn't prove it was Elton John, and, it was an, and the newspaper should have settled but didn't. Um, and my father, again, used a phrase that he'd heard, I think used originally the Liberace case in the 1950s, uh, which was um, asking the jury to award a sum that would wipe a smile off the boards of directors, of board of directors of Mirror Group newspapers. 
Okay, so which, that was which they duly did. So the jury were receptive to that. A final question in relation to his cases. This has been really fascinating, yes. Dominic. Um, Jonathan Aiken was the last case. Um, that what was one of the last cases that he that he Probably acted the, the, in. The last, really last high profile case was um, Mohammed Al Fayed. Oh yes, yes, uh, of Neil course. Hamilton, probably. Yeah, the Tory MP. But Jonathan Aiken was a very interesting case, wasn't it? Was. it? I mean, again, cross examination proved crucial. Aiken more or less broke down in the witness box and and only when confronted only when when confronted with incontrovertible truth, uh, or in terms of the airline manifest, which the Guardian. Uh, researched uh, endlessly and eventually obtained and it was due to uh, tremendous work done by the journalists in fact rather than anything that happened in court really okay um, okay well do, do, do you go back to <laughs> Mohammed Al-Fayed and yes. Neil Hamilton who was a Tory yes. MP yes. Uh, who had taken uh, who denied that he had cash, gone to the Ritz cash, in Paris cash, was cash it? for questions yeah. cash for questions yes mm. And Christine Hamilton, wasn't she involved as well? They were husband and wife she duo, was, I think. And my, fa- my, my father questioned both of them at length. Um, and of course, Mohammed Al Fayed gave evidence at length. Um, an interesting case for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and since all the protagonists are alive, I should reserve my judgment on. Very good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to get you back sometime. <laughs> Very sensible. Dominic, we have a feature in this. This has been absolutely wonderful. We have a feature on this show where we ask our guests. Uh, to recommend a book or a movie. Now, me, I was the one who was liaising with you, and I don't know whether I suggested that to you, but on the hoof, on the hoof, do you think you can come up with a book or a movie that has a legal theme, that's 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 all we need, and which you would recommend to people out there? Well, pretty dated, but there are some very good uh, film noir um, legal films, Witness of the Prosecution, The Paradine Case, both of which date back to the late 1940s. Those spring to mind. Those are personal. Um, the trouble with most modern films, uh, which are legal in context, is they're overdramatic and more often than not American and you know, a little bit hyperbolic and, and so far removed from reality as to be silly. But that, that's a personal take. Uh, in terms of books, obviously there are many good uh, legal biographies, legal memoirs, and it would be invidious to... Uh, highlight any in particular. But, okay. um, well, your own book has been recommended on this show uh, as, 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 a, as a fascinating insight into one of the great legal characters and one of the great advocates uh, of our time. Just to, to turn the question slightly on its head, who would play your father? I know, was it David Suchet played him in some sort of role or whatever? He but did. but But um, who would play, who's the movie star to play your father? He's not really a, a Tom Cruise, you can't handle the truth type character, is he? Who would play him? It's a really difficult question. I can't automatically think of somebody, but uh, somebody's going to fulfil that role, I understand, um, next year when um, a dramatisation in the West End is going to appear, so I understand, uh, of the Ken Dodd case. Um, So somebody's going to play my father during that and somebody's playing Ken Dodd, which is an equally difficult role to fulfil, so we will see. We'll have to travel to London for that one, Mark, I think, definitely. (laughs) Dominic Carman, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. And talking to us about the work you have done in Dublin, which is fascinating to our listeners, and also telling us about your your late father. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been a great pleasure, both of you. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. 
And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Dominic Carman, who was over here in Ireland to write a legal report and talk to us about the various interactions he had with our leading leading corporate firms, uh, Mark. But then we ventured into other matters and we asked so him about you, his you biography. Could, you, you, you couldn't uh, leave aside the, no, of the, 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 the background and pedigree Son there. of, of course, the, mm. the, the late uh, George Carman QC, who was involved in all those fascinating cases and Dominic was very generous he had attended a lot of them you, you mm. actually asked him about that yeah. he had attended a lot of cases that his father was was ad- when he was addressing the court uh, and he talked wonderfully about that really really interesting yeah. okay well that was really really good and I enjoyed that I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer Conalo Moroyne and to our sound engineer here at the Dublin South podcast studios. David, doing a brilliant job as always. If you have any comments or any t- on any topics you'd like to discuss with us, and we have started to get a bit more mm. feedback, Mark. We're really reaching out to people. Mm. And we get a lot of recommendations for guests. Yeah, so which is great, which is great, which is really good. And mm. we will act on those. Uh, so we're delighted with any communication you want to make to us. So you know how to contact us, but please do. Uh, so for me, Peter Leonard and myself Mark Tottenham thank you for listening and we will see you very soon in the fifth court Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas come to Ennistime in County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers have a look at the programme at wildatlanticlaw.com